but we don't need, I don't think. Yeah, if you brought your offering with you, uh, we're going to put it in that pot today. We didn't uh, pass it around. If you brought your Bibles with you, you might want to turn to uh, Acts chapter 9. Uh, probably going to be the last lesson out of Acts chapter 9 for us today. And I want to uh, say that today's message is probably as practical a message as I know how to preach. Um, in other words, in the Bible, there's a lot of theory, there's a lot of doctrine, there's a lot of, you know, that kind of stuff, uh, but there's also nuts and bolts in the Bible. Today, we're going to preach some nuts and bolts. Some, I'm going to give you some things and put in your suitcase, and your suitcase has handles on it. You're going to carry it out with you, and it's going to change you, I hope, uh, or affirm what you're already uh, doing and uh, we'll all live for Jesus a little uh, better, I hope. But in Acts chapter 9, and my Bible is the New American Standard, so uh, this week at least, and so you may uh, follow along in yours if the words are different, that explains why. Verses 36 through 42, it's the account of uh, Dorcas. Now in Joppa, by the way, that's present day Joppa. Jaffa in Israel, just a little south of uh, Tel Aviv and on the coast. Uh, it's the place that uh, uh, old Jonah sailed out of when he was running from God. So that's where we're at. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. By the way, whether it's Greek or Hebrew, uh, Tabitha being the Hebrew, the word translates the word gazelle. That's just FYI. Gazelle, like the jumping deer thing. So in Joppa, there was this gal named Tabitha, uh, a.k.a. Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. Amen. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. When they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. I'm not going to preach about this this morning, but I want to draw your attention to that verse. Almost always when a Jew dies, they rapidly, think about it when Jesus died, it wasn't only because it was the Passover bearing down on them, but they almost always run out and bury that person right away, before the sun sets. And so, interestingly, and we're not going to preach about it, but they washed her and laid her body in an upper room. And since uh, Lydda, this is a, another town, 10 miles north, was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, don't delay, come to us quickly. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, he brought him into the upper room, and the widows stood beside him weeping. It's showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and called the saints and widows, and he presented her alive. Became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So, um, and I'm not going to preach about this either, but I, 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 I thought in verse 40, turn your attention to verse 40 for a second, I thought it was interesting when he said to her, when he was praying, turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Over in, and I'm without my notes, I want to say it's Mark chapter 5, I could be wrong, but it might be there. <clears throat> Jesus was on his way to, uh, this is when the lady grabbed the hem of his garment, um, and he said, who touched me? He was on his way to an official's house because his daughter had died. Or she was really sick, and then he was met at the door saying, and her name was Talitha. So when Jesus got to Talitha's house, the, the official's house finally, and I want to say it's in Mark chapter 5, he went in there and he only took 
Peter, James, and John. So Peter, our Peter here, was Peter there too. He went inside. And Jesus looked at this little girl on the um, bed laying there dead, although he told everybody out there, Why, don't freak out, she's only sleeping, even though she was dead. He called it sleeping. And uh, they laughed at him and said, no, we know she's dead. Uh, and so he went in and he said, listen closely, Talitha, is it Mark chapter 5, Reba, are you looking for it? Oh, near the end, right near the end. No? Okay. Talitha kum, is it kum or kalum? It, the, the actual Greek word or, Greek word, or Hebrew uh, is there. K-U-M. Yeah, kum. It means arise. It means get up. That's the translation. I don't know if it's given, I don't know if the translation is given in that context, but that's what those words mean. He said, Talitha kum. So it's Jesus, the dead girl, Peter, James, and John. He made everybody else get out. And so here, and, and, and so then Peter's watching. Okay, the girl's dead, and he's watching. He sees Jesus clear everybody out of the room. First thing you do when you're going to raise someone from the dead, he cleared everybody out of the room. And then the second thing you do is say this little prayer, and you look at this dead body, and you say, in that case, uh, Talitha, kum. Talitha, arise. And she got up, and I believe Jesus said, give her something to eat, and they went, on the, they went, they went about their business there. She, he raised, so now Peter is in a different situation. Tabitha, not Talitha, only that one letter uh, is different. Tal Tabitha has died. Dorcas a.k.a. Dorcas, has died. And so Peter comes on. Oh, she's dead, she's dead. They've, he comes from another town 10 miles away. They probably had it in double uh, speed. They got there. And so Peter says, oh, well, where is she? She's in the upper room. Okay, what does Peter do? The pattern. And I'm not teaching a pattern on how to raise people from the dead today. It's not at all what I'm teaching. I'm just drawing your attention to the cute similarities. So Peter says, okay, everybody out. Sound familiar? Okay, and then you know what's going to be going through Peter's mind. You know, he's, he's silver and gold, have I none to a guy before. He raised another paralyzed guy earlier in chapter 9, just a few verses before our text today. He raised a guy. But this is the first time Peter ever gets to deal with a clinically dead person. So he clears the room, he, and he's a guy just like us. Don't put the disciples too high on a pedestal. He's a guy just like us. And so he's thinking, okay, she's dead. Uh, what do I do? Uh, what's her name? Tabitha. And I wonder if it rang a bell. Talitha. He says, oh, Jesus invited me to the room one day. I remember what he do. Everybody out. Okay? And now he says the exact same words, down to one letter difference. Tabitha kum. See, because he didn't use, our English Bibles just say Tabitha arise, but the word for that is kum. So he said the exact same thing. Tabitha Kum. And don't you know, Dorcas was raised from the dead. It was, uh, it, it was just interesting to me that you know, he had the chance to do the exact same thing as uh, Jesus uh, did. So today's message, though, has nothing to do with any of that directly. Um, it has to do with something, as I said, it's the, the very nuts and bolts of our Christian walk. Over the past century or so, uh, there has developed a, a difference in types of churches, a broad category difference between types of churches. There's two types of Christian churches. There's what we call a, uh, an evangelical or holiness church, and that's where we fall, sort of in the evangelical holy, holiness church. We're conservative. We believe the scriptures, the absolute word of God. We do our best to conform with what it says, and we're holy rollers. You know, that's what we're called because we're, we're believed that way. And then there's another kind of church in the United States of America that's called a mainline or liberal church. And the liberal churches, they're like, and, and, and it was, I was in the ministry before I really even realized that there were liberal churches. But the liberal churches are like, um, well, I had a great friend named Ray. This epitomizes a liberal church. And Ray was a pastor of an American Baptist church there in the same town I was pastoring in. We were friends. And we were snow skiing together uh, every Friday, taking a group of homeschoolers up the slopes. And uh, we're riding up the chairlift, and I said something about either Noah or Jonah, one of those traumatic stories in the Old Testament. And he, and he said, you, you say that like you believe it actually happened. I said, Pastor Ray, of course I believe it actually happened. I said, don't you? He said, no, 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 those, are, those stories are just stories to just sort of symbolize, you know, truths of God. I, my heart sank. I wanted to jump out of the chair. I said, 
you don't believe every word of the word of God? He says, no. He says, well, I believe the principles of the word of God, but I don't believe that stories are necessarily true. And so it was my first exposure to uh, uh, this sort of liberal theology. Good people, they just don't appreciate and embrace every word of scripture like we do. Over the last hundred years, the evangelical churches have paid a lot of attention to the condition of people's hearts, but not much, not much attention to the condition of their bodies, the plight of the poor. We've cared a lot about whether they're going to heaven or hell, but not about whether they're hungry or don't have shoes to fit. The liberal churches, and they don't preach so much about heaven and hell and salvation and give your heart to Jesus and all that stuff. But they're the ones that have Boy Scouts meeting in their halls, that have Alcoholics Anonymous that meet in their basements, that have the feeding programs, and that have the, 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 the coat exchanges a little bit where people can come in and find coats and, and uh, more likely to be having a homeless shelter in their church. That's, I'm painting with a broad brush, so I'm not saying that there's no exceptions. But generally speaking, the, the hardcore holiness evangelical churches have been very interested in a person's heart, and that's as far as it goes. And the liberal churches have been very uh, interested in the person's plight. And that's almost as far as it, it goes. And I want to just say that times haven't changed that much. In Jesus' day, it was the Pharisees, and they were the hardcore, conservative, absolutist, judgmental, my way or the highway, view of scripture and living, very conservative, how long you should wear your dress, how long, everything had to be protracted. And you had the Sadducees, and they were the leaning forward kind of, well, we don't really believe in heaven and hell. I don't know if you knew that, that the Sadducees didn't really believe in the afterlife or heaven and hell. And um, so there were the conservatives and the liberals. By the way, let's take it into our politics today, just to, so you can see that this, this sort of dichotomy, dichotomy that exists in the church and out of the church, in the Old Testament, in the time of Christ, today in our churches, and even in our politics. We've got, and I'm not going to make this a big political ser sermon, but uh, generally speaking, we've got the conservative bunch that's to pull yourself up by the strap, bootstraps and make it work for yourself, and let's We'll give you the tools, but we won't necessarily go running out to have all these different kinds of feeding programs and early starts and head starts and all the things that our liberal friends, they think that money will solve, you know, some of my bias and jaundice is going to show here, but they think that money is going to solve all the problems, so they have all these programs and, you know, feed them and put clothes on them and give them up, poor people, you know, and, and help them. And so there's this dichotomy, and you know the struggle, the political struggle, and you fall somewhere on that continuum. Uh, here this morning. The Assemblies of God is considered an evangelical, conservative, uh, even holiness church. And as such, our primary attention has been, and I can tell you as someone on the first Sunday I was alive, uh, slept, and I'm sure it wasn't a car seat because they didn't have them back then. I don't know how, I guess I got carried around my mom's arms in the car. But, you know, spent my first Sunday alive in the arms of a woman in, you know, in church. And, and I cut my teeth on the Assemblies, went to an Assemblies uh, you know, Bible school, graduated from Assemblies Bible School, and uh, have held credentials with the Assemblies since uh, 1987. So I'm familiar with the Assemblies, and I will say that we are, we fit the pattern of being primarily concerned with people's uh, souls and their eternity. And I suppose if you're forced to choose, if you could only have one or the other, it would be better to uh, enter heaven uh, shoeless and hungry and whatever, than it would to be enter hell with a proper fitting shoes and a, and a full belly. But this morning, I want to really preach to us about the practicality of uh, godly living. I, I can't help but be reminded of, script, of the scriptural mandate, which is what we're going to preach this morning, to do good works, that w then when I read about um, uh, Dorcas, look at verse 39. So Peter arose and went with them, and when he arrived, he brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood uh, beside him, weeping and showing the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. Up in verse 36, and I didn't give you that one, Dave, but uh, just refer to the second half. Uh, this woman, Dorcas, was abounding with deeds of kindness and 
charity, which she continually did. Dorcas was a lady whose life could be epitomized by good work. She was always looking out for somebody else. I'm convinced this morning that evangelical churches, and particularly Pentecostal and holiness churches, uh, become so vertically minded, so interested in worshiping correctly, uh, you know, e evangelism, and all these other things, that it's easy to let lose sight of the fact that on Bill Lundy Road, up here in the Clear Springs and Auburn community, down in Crestview, there are actually, and, and the, the TV, you know, when the TV tells me this and the radio tells me this, I say, where are they? But I want to give them the, that they're probably telling the truth. They say one in six of us and our neighbors struggles to eat properly, to have, have a square meal and, a, and to be, you know, have something to eat. One in six deals with, with hunger, I'm told uh, on, on television. I, I don't know how, where and how they draw those lines. But I know that generally, Assemblies of God churches, evangelical churches, care far more about souls than about hunger or proper fitting shoes and so forth. This is a subject I'm going to speak about this morning that uh, I'm fairly passionate about. Wanda, Les, and Vicki have been around me for a little longer than some of the rest of you. And you've heard me beat this drum uh, more than a few times. And I'm going to beat it again today. Uh, I think it's a drum worth beating. And so uh, I'll, I'll beat it again today. I want to draw your attention this morning uh, to the idea that in addition to being concerned about your neighbors and your coworkers and your family's spiritual condition and destination, there's a clear scriptural mandate that we're concerned about their well-being. So let me start with the, uh, uh, just a few examples. Let me start with, for instance, the Ten Commandments. I want you to see the Ten Commandments uh, charted out. I want to chart them out for you. Uh, I want you to try to imagine the ten there, bullets going down, one, two, three, ten. Okay? So the first three of the Ten Commandments have to do with our relationship with God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Okay? Thou shalt have no idols. Thou shalt not use the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Those are the first three of the Ten Commandments. Okay? They have to do with our relationship with God. God says, this is the way you treat me. And it's constituting three out of ten. No other gods. No idols. Don't use my name in vain. Okay. Three out of ten. The first three. The next one's quirky. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So it's like it doesn't really have directly to do with God. It doesn't really have directly to do with man. It's just a quirky fourth commandment that we should remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So we don't talk a lot about that. But the next six of the Ten Commandments, notice there's twice as many of these commandments as there are the first three. There are six of these. <coughs> Two-thirds of the Ten Commandments have to do with how we treat other people. Honor your father and mother. Don't be killing each other. Don't be committing adultery. Don't tell lies to each other. Don't be dishonest with each other. Don't be coveting other people's stuff. Don't steal from each other. So two-thirds of them have to do with our relationship with each other. This tells me that God knows that there's an there's a general lack of responsibility that people have uh, one, for, one for the other. The idea that I'm trying to create here is where I'm going today is not going to be a New Testament phenomenon, that it existed long ago, even in the Ten Commandments, where two-thirds of the Ten Commandments uh, have to do with uh, how we treat uh, other people. I'd like you to draw your attention also to my favorite portion of Scripture. Uh, my favorite little chunk of Scripture is in Micah chapter 6. Verses 6 through 8. It, it, I really, really like this. I don't know if we can get that on the board. I'll read it right off the board instead of uh, coming to it in my Bible. My Bible's small print. Okay. Ah, small print up there too. Listen, just listen to Micah. I, I love the way he starts off. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Let's hit the pause button there. You can keep it up. But I mean, we're going to hit the pause button there. He's asking, how do I present myself before God? What's going to please him? What, what offerings should I bring to him? What, what should I do to make God happy? 
As I consider my walk with the Lord uh, here on earth, you know, I'm going to walk out my walk with the Lord. How should I do it? What, what really makes God tick? What's going to make him happy? And that's the question he's asking. So then he begins to rhetorically kind of think through what the answer uh, might be to that question. Should I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present the firstborn, uh, my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And this is verse 8 down here. It says, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Hit the pause button again. This is beautiful because I love it when there's a, a very poignant part of Scripture where it's just all in one succinct chunk. I love it when we find little pieces like that. And this is a gem. We found it. It says, what does the Lord require of you? Then he answers it. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I want you to notice something about this list. There's three things. To do justice. Think about it. To do justice. Is that something you do towards God? What can you do justice towards God? You don't do justice towards God. You do justice towards other people. When you see an injustice, you stand up against it, and you say, hey, that's not right. You shouldn't be treating that person or that group of people like that. We're not going to stand for it anymore, and, and, and we're going to do what's right. We're going to do what's just. Second thing. Whoa, thank you. Do justice to love kindness. You're not kind towards God. I guess you're getting my hand. I guess you're getting, like my daughter says, my daughter-in-law says, you can smell what I'm stepping in by now, can't you? She, you, you, you show kindness to other people. You're soft and patient and generous towards other people. Think Dorcas, you know. Uh, she's thinking of other people. They didn't all hold up quilts and, and, and scarves and tunics that she had made for herself. They didn't take Peter into a big room and said, look at all the beautiful clothes she made for herself. No, they showed him the things that she had been busy making, sacrificing her time. Listen, always when you're helping somebody else, this is where I'm going to end up. This is going to be the last words that I say this morning, but let me just jump to the chase right now and tell you ahead of time. Always when you're doing what's right by God for other people, it is going to involve a sacrifice. It's not free. It's not without a consequence. It's not without an inconvenience. It's not without an imposition. It's going to cost you one way or the other. It might cost you financially. It might cost you uh, in your time. It might cost you just inconvenience. But it's going to cost you. You're going to have to make a sacrifice to make doing what we're going to talk about today happen. Dorcas sacrificed her time. She, she had to go to the market and, and buy the fabric or buy the thread to loom the fabric or I don't know their trade methods back then. But she had to acquire the resources. Then she had to sit down and, and I guess I always see her pushing it through the thing, but they didn't have those then. So she had to sit down and do what you do to uh, snip and cut and tuck and, and make those things work. And then she would give them away to other people and they, and they were so touched by it. It was, an, it was a loving kindness. She just embraced kindness. So to do justice and love ki kindness are two things. Now, the third thing is walk humbly with your God. Now, there's only one person that you can walk humbly with God with, and that's God. So again, two out of three. I want you to see the pattern there. Two out of three of the Lord's expectations are that we pay attention to other people. Okay, let's fast forward to Jesus' time. The Pharisees of Jesus' time were the religious right-wingers. Whether you like it or not, and I expect you won't. Whether you like it or not, the right-wing, the moral majority, the conservative church, the evangelicals, if there was a group of people in Jesus' time who they were most closely like, it is the Pharisees. They, the Pharisees, you've got to love the Pharisees. So they get a bad rap. But you've got to love the Pharisees. They had some bad behaviors. You've got to pay attention to what Jesus said to them, particularly Matthew chapter 23. But, but, but they were guardians over the word of God. They didn't allow you to change any of those words. They didn't allow you to twist it. They, they protected the word of God. And, and they knew the word of God was, was exactly what it was all about. And the law, that's what it was all about. Because in their minds, that was the most important thing was the law of God, the rules of God. And they 
busy themselves. They were so concerned, for instance, uh, in, 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 let's say, tithing, that even on their way to their little temple, they would stop by their little herb garden, and they would make sure their dill and their mint and their cumin, they would pick, oh, 20 dill, and they'd pick two out and put it on the altar of God. They were the, they, they, they took it seriously. Jesus never said, don't take it seriously like the Pharisees take it. In fact, he said, you've got to do what they say, but don't be like them. It, as concerned as they were about following the path of God and obeying the, the rules of God, they had some serious deficiency. They had a most serious deficiency. And that is, they didn't give a wit about the man that they were talking to. If he was hungry, tough luck. If he was naked, you know, not naked naked, but mostly naked or shabby, tough luck. This is the law of God. Suck it up, deal with it, do it. This is the law of God. And that's, and that's where their heart was. They were religious right-wingers. They were the ultra conservatives. They struggled, the Pharisees did, to understand, to embrace, or to appreciate any of this uh, liberal, care for your fellow man teaching of Jesus. See, Jesus came along, and, and one of the most profound clashes, and one of the things that got Jesus in trouble with the Pharisees, is that Jesus was viewed, and again, I don't expect you to like this this morning. What I'm going to say right now, you're going to buck against it. In Jesus' time, there were the Pharisees conservative, right-wing, rule of God, order of God, law of God, minded people. And here comes Jesus, kind of free-willy, lovey-dovey, hippie, 60s, uh, you know, kind of, whoo-hoo, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love your enemies. I say unto you, love your enemies. And they're like, who is this liberal right uh, left-winger always talking about love and caring about other people. And so he clashed with them. And that is, friends, that is the core of Jesus' clash with the Pharisees, that Jesus was saying, you've got to pay attention to your fellow man. Y'all don't have it right when you give all this attention to the law of God and you neglect the weightier matters of the, the law. Namely, again, Matthew chapter 23, reread it. Namely, mercy to your fellow man. This is where you're missing the boat. And so the, the, the uh, Pharisees, they struggled to understand or embrace or appreciate any of this liberal uh, care for your fellow man stuff that Jesus was teaching. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter 22 and verses 34 through 36. Uh, I, I want to give you an example of this this morning. Okay, but when the Pharisees, remember, right-wingers, heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, okay, nobody liked Jesus. They were all part of the religious club that didn't like Jesus because he, he was sort of the hippie, the, the new age hippie among them, teaching stuff that they'd never heard before, and they were trying to protect what they had. They, did, they were, I want to emphasize this because I don't want you to miss it. They weren't protecting what they had because they were bad people. They were protecting what they had because they were good people, and they wanted to protect from this hippie this weird teaching that he's starting to teach and distracting the people from what we have always done for decades and centuries, you know, and we've always done it this way. So the Sadducees took their swipe at Jesus, and he silenced them. It's not the swipe I want to talk about today. I want to talk about this swipe. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. The Pharisees did. One of them, who was a lawyer... Asked him a question, putting Jesus to the test, and said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So they thought for sure that they were going to get Jesus here. Because what, with all his lovey-dovey, what's he going to say, that we should buy shoes for new children? You know, should we bake bread for the hungry? And then they were going to zap him. So, before we go farther, I want to ask you a question. This lawyer, this Pharisee, this right-wing extremist, how many questions did he ask Jesus? One question. That's right. Okay. 
Lord of God. All right. What's the greatest commandment? Asked him one question. Why do you think they even asked? They asked because they didn't think he was going to get the question right. And then they were going to have a technical foul. They were going to be able to dismiss him. See, he's a heretic, blah, blah, blah. See, we knew he didn't have it right, so they asked him this one question. This is after they met. What can we ask him? What can we ask him? You know, and then a, and then a lawyer said, I know what to ask him. What's the greatest commandment? They thought for sure to trap him. It even said to try to trap him, to test him. Uh, more importantly, look at Jesus' answer, 37 through 40 here. And he said unto him, this is the answer to the question, what's the greatest commandment? One question. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Pause. You know they went, ooh, he got it right. Because mm. that is the most important uh, commandment. That's the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, with everything you've got, every ounce of your being, to love the Lord. That is our first responsibility as Christians, just to love the Lord with everything we have. There's the answer to your one question, Pharisee. To love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. And uh, this is the great and foremost commandment. There's the answer to your question. But he didn't stop talking. He said the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. I call this asked one question, gave two answers. And I want to ask you, why did he give two answers to one question? He gave two answers to the one question because he knew that they needed to know, track me here, he knew that they needed to know that he knew what the greatest commandment was. But he needed them to know that they didn't understand how important the second greatest commandment was. The one that he said is like it. The one that says, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Because they got A pluses on, the Pharisees did and the Sadducees did, they got A pluses on the first commandment. They really did. A plus. Okay, Mr. Pharisee, A plus. But they got D minus minus on the second greatest commandment. So Jesus was almost, you know, I'm sure in Jesus' spirit, he was like, I'm glad you asked what the greatest commandment is. It's to love the Lord your God with all your strength. But the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Ask one question, give two answers. It's because he knew they needed to know the answer to that second question. Luke's account of this exchange, uh, you know, they're, they're synoptic writers. They all write about the same thing. He includes that Jesus went on with a story. It's a familiar story, and, and I want to just tell it, remind us of it quickly. So a certain man was going up to uh, Jerusalem from Jericho, and he was beat up on the way. He, he, Jesus told the story right after he said, the second is like it. Uh, you should love your neighbor, you should love yourself. Luke chapter 10. We're not going to read it. We're just going to, I'm going to tell you the story, remind you of it quickly. So uh, he was beat up and left for dead. They took his clothes, they took his stuff, uh, robbed him and left him for dead. And, and Jesus said, and you know what happened then? A priest walked by and ignored him. Didn't help him. A Levite walked by, walked on the other side of the road. Didn't help him. And then a Samaritan came by. Before I finish the story, I want to remind you briefly about the Samaritans. You know, for a long time, uh, particularly in our neck of the woods, don't take it as an insult, it's just an observation. For a long time, people of other ethnic backgrounds have had a hard time fitting in in these parts, okay? Whether they're black or Hispanic or even sometimes uh, what you call it uh, from the Far East, you know, Philippines, or just have a hard time gaining acceptance. Some worse than others. Samaritans, whatever you think the worst than others is, Samaritans is the worst of the worst. The Jews hated the Samaritans. For no reason, they didn't probably know one Samaritan, but they knew they hated them all. So it's interesting that Jesus chose a priest, a Levite, that it sort of epitomized the really good guys. And then he said, and then a Samaritan came along. He didn't just say somebody. He said, one of these guys that y'all really hate came by. And he doted on this guy. And, 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 he, and he poured oil on his wounds, put him on his donkey, carried him up to the local uh, shelter, 
a little motel thing. Said, this guy's really hurt. Here's some money. Fix him up. Make sure he's taken care of. I'm going to come back in a couple days. If I owe you anything, go ahead and give me some credit. If I owe you anything, I'll, I'll pay up. And Jesus said uh, at the end of the story, which of these three guys was his neighbor? Well, the answer is uh, obvious. Uh, the, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Uh, it was the third guy, the Samaritan, that won that ribbon. So much emphasis is put on faith in our evangelical circles, uh, as it should be, but we know better, and, and it doesn't stop there. We memorize, for instance, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You memorize this verse in Scripture in, uh, in, in uh, Sunday school. For by grace have you been saved through faith. This is like one of the first, this is in the top ten. Okay? Um, but we only memorize these two verses. Bugs me. If we ever teach little kids Sunday school here, we're going to teach them three verses in a minute, Dave. But we know these two verses. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we preach about it, and we, we're all concerned about their hearts, as we should be. As I said, if I had to only choose one or the other, I'd choose their eternal souls any day of the week. But that's not the, we don't have to choose one or the other. But we champion this idea of eternal, uh, you know, this is the important stuff, this is the faith stuff, this is the getting saved stuff, this is the embracing uh, that it, nothing that I could do to save myself, that it's all the work of God. And the very next verse, wait a minute, don't flip it yet. Notice, 2, 8, and 9. Okay, we memorize those. We don't look so much at 10. Go ahead and give me 10 up here. Hopefully you got it, yeah. Grace has been saved through faith, not of worse, a gift of God. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for what purpose? For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It was at the point when I was a teenager, maybe when I was a kid, but I wasn't paying real close attention when I was a kid, teenager in 20s, that I'm going to tell you something, and I don't know if this will resonate with you or not. I might, it might just be my personal experience. Where good works was almost taboo. You know, we don't talk about good works. Good works are what the, the liberal churches teach, that that's how you go to heaven, that you go to heaven by good works. And, and as a little kid or, or a teenager or a young guy in the military, I would be quick to tell people, you want to be careful of good works. When you stand before God, you know, he's not going to ask you, you know, did, did you do any good works? It's, you know, it's not about good works. It's about your faith in God. You know? And, and it, it was almost like good works was taboo. Now, certainly, good works versus bad works, we choose the good works. But I'm talking about doing the right thing by your neighbor, there was never an emphasis uh, with that uh, in, in my experience growing up. Paul knew the balance. Paul knew that we got to be concerned about their uh, souls and faith and grace and understanding all that and also that we were created to do good work, good works. You know, I've taught you before, uh, I love the book of James. I love it because James was Jesus, uh, call him half-brother, you know, same mother, different father, of course. And uh, a few years younger than Jesus. And one of the cool things that James got to do that uh, not many other guys got to do, no other biblical writers got to do, and that is sit around the dinner table at night and listen to what Jesus and Joseph and Mary talked about. Because, you know, Jesus obviously brought a heavenly perspective. Now, he had to learn, you know, his ABCs just like we did. He had to be diaper trained, just like a little kid does. He had to learn his craft. He didn't come out, you know, showing his daddy how to run the plane. He had to learn how to run the plane from his daddy. He had to memorize scripture, uh, just like uh, his his uh, other people did. This was the humanity side of Jesus, and yet there was this intriguing, curious, heavenly-minded, you know, part of Jesus that is always difficult to completely synthesize and embrace. But we understand that he was also fully God. So, as such, his perspective was, you know, like, as a quick example, really quick. So when he's in the temple at 12 years old, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business, was his answer to his mother. 
you know, clearly he had this sort of uh, heavenly mindedness. And so he had that perspective. So I'm sure as they sat around the dinner table and they talked about this and that and about Mrs. Smith, who still hasn't paid for the new roof we put on her house three weeks ago. And I wonder if she's going to pay. What should we do about it? Should we be merciful to her and just let her have it? Or should we, you know, tighten the screws and, and keep visiting her and making her pay? Or should we go to her son and make him pay? Because they had collection issues back then, too. That collection issues, issues isn't a 21st century issue. So, you know, and, and what do we do? Mrs. Jones doesn't like where we put the window. We thought we put the window exactly where she wanted the window, but apparently she wanted it closer to the corner. And does she expect us to tear it all down? So, you know, and, and, and James got to sit and listen to all the exchanges. What about last Sunday? What last Saturday's uh, teaching in the in the synagogue? Uh, yeah, in the synagogue. You know, blah 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 blah. And hear Jesus' perspective. And James got to hear all that. You know, you talk about being a fly on the wall. James was the fly on the wall. He got to hear all that wisdom from Jesus and all that perspective from from, from Joseph. So when when I read what James writes, I'm mindful that he like had a special blessing. Not only was he a uh, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write what he wrote, but it, but it also really came from the core of his being. I'd like you to think about what he wrote in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. James 2, 14 through 17. Uh, he, he asked this question, what use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't do anything? No works. Can that faith save him? Now, to be honest with you, James is up in the ante much more than Pastor Cliff's up the ante so far this morning. All Pastor Cliff's done this morning is saying, hey, you have faith, that's nice. Uh, we need to be more like Dorcas and have some good works of sacrifice to go along with it. And I'm trying to remind you that this is a biblical pattern. It's not an Old Testament pattern, not a New Testament pattern, not a Jesus pattern. It is, it is patterned throughout Scripture. But look at him. He's, raising the, he's, he's, he's seeing me that and raising me one here. Can that faith even save him? If he doesn't have good works, is that faith... Faith enough to even save him. Save him. If a brother, and then he gives an example. If a brother or sister is without, I'll say, proper clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them the very spiritual thing, they say to him, Oh, and, and I have seen this happen. I have seen this happen. I'll finish reading and I'll tell you what I've seen. Maybe you've seen it. Hopefully, we haven't been guilty of it. Go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what's necessary for their body. What use is that? Even faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Have you seen it? Have you seen someone offer to pray for someone who, who has expressed the physical need that they have, and the response has been, well, I'll pray. That's as far as it goes. James is warning, be careful about that. If Sam says to me, you know, my potatoes didn't come in this year, and that's important because I've never told you this before, I'm making this stuff up. I've never told you this before, but Marion and I, we count on the potatoes because that's what that was one of the staples of our diet. We, you know, there's not in a whole bunch of extra cash, you know, we we, we count on our potatoes, and the, and the uh, weather this year, nothing came. You know, I got about a, a tenth of a crop I should have gotten, and so, so what should my response be? Oh, that's terrible, Sam. I have to pray that, pray that, pray that it goes good for you. God bless you, man. Pray for you about that. Now, it's nice that I'm praying for him about that, but let's take the test. First question is easy. Should I do anything else? I mean, not rhetorically, I want an answer for that. Should I do something else? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Help fix the problem. What if he needs $30 worth of potatoes and I only have 120 bucks? I mean, for, for what I've got. Do you remember the element that I introduced earlier when I was talking about Dorcas's clothes and someone had to sacrifice? See, and this is where the rubber really hits the road. This is where it gets hard. It's, it's easy if I get $10,000 to say, oh, you need $30 worth of potatoes. It's still the right thing to do to help them out with the potatoes. But it probably isn't going to be that I have $10,000, I can assure you. 
It's not going to be that I have $10,000. But if I, if someone expresses a need, what I'm teaching right here in this part of the message is we don't just give out of our extra. Sometimes It's nice, and I'm proud of you. I am, and the Lord's proud of you when you give out of your extra. I mean, you know, that's better than keeping all your extra. I'm proud of you for giving out of your extra. But this morning's message is about giving out of what you also need a little bit of. And that's why it's a sacrifice. You know, I've only got 120, and that's supposed to be my meat and vegetables and milk and gravy and everything. But nevertheless, what am I going to do? I'm just going to say a prayer and then let them go hungry? No. I'm either going to drum some up myself and help make it work out, or I'm going to visit as few people as possible, at least by names. I mean, we don't need to let the whole church know that, you know, Sam's needing potatoes and it's unfortunate. And, but we do what we have to do to make sure the need is met. That's why I said at the very, 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 very beginning of this message, this message is as nuts and boltsy, as practical as it gets in Christian. Sometimes we talk about all these highfalutin things, a whole message about the rapture of the church and be ready and all that, and I'm all about being ready and, oh, holiness and be holy, and, you know, I'm all about casting your sins away and be careful to sin that so easily besets you and, and, and all these other, but, but this is a message that was near and dear to God's heart when he, you know, he taught, whether it was in Micah 6, 6 through 8, or whether it was in the Ten Commandments, or whether it was, you know, you know, Jesus teaching, you know, the second is like it. Love your neighbors, you love yourself. It is our tendency to focus on ourselves and God. I'll call that vertical. It is our tendency to focus on the channel that we have with God and neglect the people to our left and the people to our right. That's our tendency. It's not new. I said in the last hundred years or so, we've seen a little schism in the church where churches have begun to identify them as conservative evangelical, Pentecostal holiness churches, or, or liberal mainline do-gooder, good works churches. And it really has divided itself out that way. And, that, and that's an unfortunate uh, thing. Uh, as a church, and as a church of individuals, we need to be uh, prepared to sacrifice to meet needs that we learn about. Even to pray that, Lord, show me. Are you courageous enough to pray this prayer? Lord, show me this week a need. Because Pastor Cliff preached about that, but I just don't see any needs firsthand. Nobody comes to me and says, I don't have my potatoes that I need to eat. Pray to God that two things. Uh, one, Lord, open my eyes that I would see. Or go ahead, Lord, and give me a trial run with this and show me somebody, maybe even this week, Lord, just show me somebody that maybe uh, needs a little help. When you, when you exercise that kind of love, it is extreme worship that the Lord receives. I want you to understand that. When you help and bless and serve other people, the Lord receives that as worship. I'm going to close with this thought. Uh, it's in Matthew 25. I don't, yeah. Again, I won't read it. It starts in verse 31. You'll remember Jesus said at the end of the age, uh, the angels of the earth are going to go gather everybody uh, to stand before the throne and going to put the sheep on one side and the goats on the other. Remember that story? And uh, I'm going to say to the sheep, um, blessed are you, come on in, because when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. Thirsty, you gave me something to drink. A stranger, you took me in. Naked, you clothed me. Sick, you uh, helped me out. In prison, you visited me. And I love what verse 37 says. Do you have that? I love what verse 37 says in Matthew 25. The righteous will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you thirsty and give you something to drink? What I love about this verse is this verse tells me that they had been doing it so much and so regularly that for them it was like we didn't even know we were doing it. We didn't. We were just doing what we thought we were supposed to. It was, it was, it was just like breathing for them or just like getting, filling gas in their car. It's not a special exercise. We were just doing what we were doing. When did we ever do that for you? And he said, whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. Oh, 
Well, yeah, of course we did it to the least of these. Aren't you supposed to do it? And that's what God said, yes, I love you for that. That was wonderful, you bunch of sheep. Come on in now. You, you did all those things. And then he says to the goats, he said, oh, you goats. I was hungry, you gave me nothing. I was thirsty, you didn't notice, gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you left me outdoors. I was naked, you gave me no clothes to wear. I was sick, you ignored me. I was in prison, you ignored me. And uh, they get the same kind of treatment. They said, when did we ever ignore you? And he said, whenever you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't uh, do it to me. So tie a bow on this this morning. I really want us to see Dorcas. We didn't talk about her getting raised from the dead. We didn't talk about all that other stuff so much. But she's a shining example of someone who's going to be on the sheep side. Just did what she does. She makes stuff. She probably enjoyed making stuff. She probably hummed and sang when she was making stuff. And she enjoyed giving away helping people that would have never had that kind of tunic or robe or hair scarf or whatever all the different stuff she made was. It's a woman full of charity and good works. And I want someday, if someone ever eulogizes me, I, I hope that there's be a way that uh, someone would say, you know, he was so-so in his faith or so-so whatever. I want it to be, you know, I'm, I'm a believer and I, I don't want to be so-so, but he loved people and when he saw a need, he made sure the need was met. And I want when Jesus sees me to say, you know, you took care of me. And I, when did I take care of you? When you did the right thing for all those other people. So, uh, even to the point if it's a sacrifice. May well be a sacrifice. Don't only do it. We don't only do it when it's easy. We do it no matter what. Because whatsoever we do to the least of these, we're doing it to the Lord. When we stop and help that individual, we get Sam as extra potatoes. Sam, in that case, is the Lord. We're doing it as unto the Lord. And that's how I say it's like worshiping the Lord. Amen? All right. Dorcas, she's our hero today. Lord, help us to find Dorcas, the Dorcas, within each one of us. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, um, I thank you uh, for spiritual stuff and uh, holiness. And I in no way this morning mean to diminish any of the importance of that nor diminish the importance of a born-again experience. But I pray, O oh God, that uh, we would be mindful that you have, uh, you have serious interest on how we treat other people. And I pray, O oh God, that uh, we would understand that as we treat them properly, we're worshiping you and we're doing as unto you. Help us towards that end. Help us not to be selfish. Help us not to be uh, ignorant, help us not to be blind to needs around us. And I'll go ahead and pray for all of us this morning, Lord, as I said, but maybe we'd pray for ourselves. Show us this week, manifest to us this week, somebody who needs something. And maybe it would be a prayer, maybe it would be a spiritual response, or maybe it would be physical. And help us, oh God, to have the courage to be willing to uh, meet that need. Bless this message to our hearts. Help us not to forget it. Help us to appreciate and embrace that it's your heartbeat. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Uh, if you don't have to hurry off, don't hurry off. There's that cake to be eaten next door.